Well, good morning and happy Father's Day. Those of you online, thanks for uh, sticking with us for just a second. Glad that you found us. We wish you a happy Father's Day as well. And at the outset of a Father's Day or Mother's Day message, I'm always careful to acknowledge the reality that while we unabashedly and unreservedly celebrate dads and positive male role models and uncles and grandpas and big brothers and all the other men who have had a positive influence in our lives, we also recognize that, that there are some people that are missing their dad, maybe for the first time. This is the first Father's Day where dad's in heaven. Or maybe there are men here who are longing to be a dad and they're struggling through infertility. Or there are people who have pain or regret around Father's Day. So we acknowledge that as well. We turn our attention to our good, good father. Scripture tells us that he is the father of compassion and the God of all comfort. And so for those to whom Father's Day is a mixed blessing, we invite the comfort of our Heavenly Father. And we look to him for strength. We look to him for healing. We look to him for comfort. And we look to him for peace. And we carry forward. We move forward grateful for the fatherly influences in our lives, grateful for godly men who have influenced us. And uh, we're in a new series. This is week two of a series titled A Firm Foundation. Uh, We started last week and it will be rooted in the New Testament predominantly, or sorry, the Old Testament. We've been in the New Testament all year. The summer reading plan with our Banding Together journals is, is going to be going through the Old Testament. And so if you've got questions about that, reach out to me. Um, I would love to connect the dots for you there. But last week, we started that series off by looking at one of our core values here at Linwood, which is centering our lives on the Word. And this is one of three core value statements that we hold really dear. They're not aspirational so much as we wish this was true about us. These are more foundational, that this is true about us. And even if we're punished to do so, even if culture changes we're still going to center our lives on the Word. That's not going to change. We're still going to look to God's Word to give us wisdom, to give us insight, and to instruct us. And so we define centering our lives on God's Word this way here at Linwood, to consistently preach, teach, and apply the Word of God to every area of our lives, both individually and corporately. So last week we took that kind of piece by piece. We looked at God's Word and the foundational aspects of God's Word, both in our own lives, but also to be foundational for the gospel, to be foundational for the new covenant, the New Testament. It rests upon the old. And we talked about this idea that we're no longer under the law that we read about in the Old Testament. We're now standing upon it. And we're recipients of grace and recipients of mercy. And we have the opportunity to be in a relationship with Jesus. Um, and, And so we celebrated all of that. And our bottom line last week was that there is no firmer foundation than the Word of God. There's no firmer foundation than the whole Word of God for your life, for your family, for our churches, for our communities, for our nation, for our world, that, that there is no firmer foundation upon which to build a life or a family or a church or a nation than God's Word. And so today we're going to be looking at the difference a dad makes, the, the difference of dad makes. This, this fits well in our, in our passage. Parenting is a foundational Exercise, you're laying a foundation for that next generation. You're seeking to be a solid foundation for them. And uh, some of you, if you're in the Banding Together journals and you're reading the first 
track, which focuses on the law, you just read Genesis. So good news, you'll be familiar with much of the story here. We're going to be uh, in Genesis chapter 25 through 50. Uh, It's going to run a little long. The scripture reading itself will take about an hour, hour and 10 minutes to get through Genesis 25 through 50, but I think you'll be blessed. I'm joking. We won't do the whole thing. We'd still be here from the last service if we tried to do 25 chapters of scripture. But we really will be looking at the arc of the story of Jacob and his 12 sons that is told to us in Genesis chapters 25 through 50. And we'll touch on the majority of those 25 chapters and doing so to illustrate a really important point that in the New Testament, often you can take just a verse or a passage of scripture and pick it apart and gain all kinds of insights and wisdom and understanding because it's very It's very prescriptive. It tells you what to do and why to do it. The Old Testament is more narrative form. And so it doesn't read like Paul's letters where we've spent a lot of time. It doesn't necessarily even read like the Gospels, which are relatively short in comparison to the Old Testament. The Old Testament often takes 25 chapters to make a really strong point, or there's multiple points that you can glean from that. If you're like me and you're in Old Testament option number two in the journals, you just suffered through the book of Judges, which may be one of the most depressing, disturbing, distressing books in all of the Bible for sure, and maybe in all of literature. It's rough. It is R-rated from the very early chapters to the very end. And some of the most disturbing images that we can imagine are presented there. And they do so not to say, hey, this is how it should be. This is say, this is how it should not be. This is what happens when a nation turns their back on God. And just like we looked at last week, when we center our lives on the Word, the Old Testament makes it really clear. Things go well when we center our lives on the Word of God. And when we turn our backs on God, that's what we see in the book of Judges and the depravity that is is possible in just a few generations from Joshua leading the people into the promised land. It's disturbing. And it's a good reminder that we need to be in God's Word. So we're going to look at the arc of this story from Genesis chapter 25 through 50. It's the story of Jacob and his 12 sons. And even if you're not big on reading your Bible, even if you've never cracked open the pages of Scripture, there's a very good chance you've seen a Charlton Heston movie about this or an animated movie about this. These are, these are tremendous stories that have been foundational to multiple cultures. And they're told on a regular basis, and they're, they're, they're retold on a regular basis. So you may hear some things that stand out to you or that resonate with you. But just to catch you up to the story that we pick up in Genesis 25, we're looking at Jacob. Jacob had a brother named Esau. And so Jacob and Esau were born to Isaac. Isaac was born to Abraham. So Abraham's kind of the beginning of this new page. There's a new covenant that God makes with Abraham. Abraham and and his wife Sarah, they don't have children until very late in life. And then there's a miracle child, uh, Isaac, who is the child of promise. I should say they did have a child, Ishmael, um, through the servant woman that was not God's will. God's will was a, a, a promise that would be fulfilled through Isaac. Isaac and his wife Rebecca have twin sons named Jacob and Esau. And from the very beginning, there's contention between Jacob and Esau. It goes way deeper than a sibling rivalry, okay? They were born as twins, and Scripture tells us that Jacob was clasping the heel of Esau. 
Like from the very beginning, there was contention over who's going to be first. They were battling out in the womb. And Esau makes it through first, which means he gets a birthright. And it means he gets a blessing as the firstborn. But Jacob, whose name means deceiver, found a way to swindle Esau out of both his birthright and his blessing. Now, Esau was pretty careless in the the tale of the birthright that he traded it for a bowl of stew, basically. He let his fleshly appetites win the moment, and Jacob seized that moment and comes away from that with the birthright. But the blessing was outright deception. He lied to his father. He stepped in front of his brother, received his brother's blessing. Well, if there was contention before that, there was huge contention after that. So much so that Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, are pretty concerned that Esau, the hunter, the big, hairy, burly man, is going to kill Jacob over this. So Jacob flees, goes back to his mother's family in a nation or a land called Padan Aram. It's quite a ways away. And he spends 20 years there. And while he's there, he accumulates four wives at least 11 children. We have 11 named sons as he leaves Padanaram 20 years later. There were probably girls born to him as well. So a large family, a large tribe coming into being, and massive numbers of animals and livestock and flocks. He leaves a very wealthy man. And as he returns, as he leaves Padanaram and he returns to Canaan, he returns to the land of his fathers, there are three pivotal confrontations that Jacob goes through. And we don't have time to look at each one in detail, but they have to do with his father-in-law, Laban, in Genesis 31. There's a confrontation there. And Jacob, who leaves kind of, well, Laban's away and takes off and kind of uses the old deceiver, deception uh, model, they reconcile. They are good now. Jacob and Laban are good. And then as he's entering, he has an encounter with God and he spends the night wrestling with God. And at the end of that, God changes his name from Jacob, the deceiver, to Israel. And the word Israel means he struggled with God. He struggled with God and persisted. He struggled with God all night long. He struggled with God. And I think that references just how pivotal this was. And then the third confrontation is as he enters his homeland, he has a confrontation with Esau. But he approaches him with humility. He approaches Esau with an apology. He refers to himself as Esau's servant. And he offers him very lavish gifts, which Esau declines. He doesn't need it. He's he's like, I'm okay now. We're okay. And those two are reconciled. And so you see these three reconciliations that take place. And scholars point to this as a pivotal, pivotal time, a turning point, a paradigm-shifting season in Jacob's life. And it's fascinating to consider over the next few chapters in the Genesis narrative, the treachery of Jacob's first 10 sons. And they were born to him and raised by him in this season before he'd had this paradigm shifting experience with his father-in-law, with God, with his brother, before all this reconciliation. They were the children born to him in his young age when he was building his empire and when he was focused on accumulation. And you see a tremendous contrast between Jacob's first 10 sons and his last two sons. And we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the difference a dad makes. Because we can see it played out right here in Scripture. We can see it in the treachery of his first ten sons. 
And it's reasonable to assume that he neglected them as children, at least at first. And what we see in Jacob's first ten ten sons illustrates a point that was made very succinctly by Frederick Douglass. It is easier to build strong children than it is to repair broken adults. It is easier to build strong children than it is to repair broken adults. To the glory of God, he is able to reparent us. He is able to refather us. He is able through his word and through communities of faith to reparent us. But it is far easier to build strong children than to repair broken adults. And as we look at the treachery of his first ten sons, it's reasonable to assume that he had very little to do with them. In fact, Scripture records that he didn't name any of his first eleven children. And you might think, why is that significant? Well, it was a patriarchal society. Fathers always named their children. Abraham named Isaac. God told him what to call him, but he named him. Isaac named Jacob and Esau. This was commonplace. And throughout the rest of the biblical narrative, fathers name their children in almost every case. And so that's a, an indicator that Jacob wasn't really present as a dad. And it was a bit of a nightmare because Jacob loved Rachel. He didn't love Leah and Zilpah and Bilhah. He didn't love them. And he, he didn't seem to be too engaged in the fathering until it gets to Joseph and Benjamin. And so it really underscores our bottom line for this message. We'll give it to you now. We'll give it to you at the end. You'll see it throughout the narrative. Dads always make a difference. Dads always make a difference for better or for worse. Dads make a difference with their presence or with their absence. Dads make a difference. And we see it very clearly in the story of Jacob and his 12 sons. So I want to run you through just just the highlights. This isn't the whole story, just the highlights of the treachery of these first 10 sons. They deal falsely with the people of Shechem. Right after Jacob and his family make it back to the promised land and they settle near Shechem, there's a situation that develops and the sons have an opportunity to, to kind of get at the people of Shechem. They rape a daughter and it's a bad situation, but they use deception and, and they say the only way you can make this right is to be circumcised. We're circumcised. And you can do the math on this. While they're recovering from the circumcision, they go in and slaughter them. Slaughter all the men in the town. And you kind of have to look back and say, I wonder what Jacob would have done before these encounters with Laban and with God and with Esau when he was Jacob the deceiver. Would he have done something like this? Did the acorn not fall too far from the tree? And we see that particularly Simeon and Levi kind of lead the way on this deception. We see Reuben, the firstborn, sleeping with his father's maidservant. So Rachel's maidservant was given to Jacob to bear children for Rachel while Rachel was barren. I know, this is, Bob, Bible's not endorsing this. It's reporting this, okay? It's really important when you read the Old Testament to understand that everything that is reported in Scripture is not endorsed by Scripture, okay? Some people have crazy ideas, like the Bible is for multiple wives. It's not. Every single situation where there's multiple wives, it's a train wreck, okay? It's reporting it. It's not endorsing it. But in doing so, when Reuben goes and sleeps with his father's wife's maidservant, he's basically usurping his father's authority. He's saying, I'm the leader of the tribe now. That's what that would have meant. That's a deep, deep, dysfunctional wound. And when we pick up the narrative on Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, we 
told that his brothers were so envious of him and so frustrated and so angry and so hateful that Scripture tells us they couldn't even speak a single kind word. Think about that. No good morning. No good afternoon. No good night. No, hey, how you doing? Not a single kind word from his ten older brothers to Joseph, the dreamer, the favored child, the fair-haired boy, the son born to Jacob in his old age. And they eventually come up with this plot to kill Joseph. They're actually having a conversation. Should we kill him or sell him? Which, incidentally, you don't want to be the subject of a conversation about whether they're going to kill you or sell you. And that's where Joseph finds himself. And interestingly enough, Reuben and Judah seem to have a little bit of a conscience. If you read Genesis 37, you'll see that they're kind of, don't kill him. They save his life by saying, let's sell him instead. We'll actually gain something from that. With the idea, we're told that Reuben is going to come back and free Joseph and let him go. So maybe there's been a little bit of a change in heart in Reuben. Maybe he has a child now and he understands what this is going to do to his father. And it gives him a pause from being blinded by his jealousy and his envy. We don't know for sure, but we know that Joseph ends up getting sold to the Ishmaelites and taken down to Egypt. And you can read all about that story. And maybe the final example, the final Jerry Springer moment, if there was a Jerry Springer of Mesopotamia in this time, that Joseph and Jacob and that whole family would have been all over, right? We have a situation that develops where Judah ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law, and it just highlights how treacherous, how dysfunctional this, this family was, and the generational impact of those choices. That just gives you the high points. That's just a brief synopsis. But it sets the stage and it really highlights the, the negative side. The, the dads always make a difference. And the absence of a father, the disengagement of a father, has a tremendous impact. But we can see in Joseph and Benjamin that things turn out very, very differently. And we can learn from the narrative three things. I'll call them difference makers for dad. Three difference makers for dads that we see that Jacob did with Joseph and Benjamin that he didn't do with the other ten. And Joseph and Benjamin turn out very, very differently. So the first difference maker for dad, which has a tremendous impact on their lives and on the generations to come, is that he loved their mother. And Dads, one of the biggest things that you can do for the lives of your children is to love their mother. I was fortunate enough when I was a young parent, a young father, for the first time, back in a big church in Wyoming, there were four or five guys in the span of a month that told me, Mark, the best thing you can do for that little boy is to love his mom. The best thing you can do for your kids is to love their mother, to self-sacrificingly surrender for their mother, to keep the family unit strong. And it was so, it happened so many times that I wondered, did you guys all just have a conference and you go to? And that was the main point because like one guy after another told me this in some form or fashion. And one guy dug into it and he said, you're going to love that little boy. He's the apple of your eye. And if you're not careful, if you're not intentional, it's possible for you and Heather to focus so much of your love on that little boy that brings so much delight and so much joy that you forget to love each other that you forget to spend time on each other, that you forget to invest in your marriage. And and it was a helpful reminder. It was a helpful uh, bit of wisdom that was passed on to us that one of the best things you can do for your kids is to love their mother. If we look at our story here in Genesis 29, three times, three times in one chapter, we're told 
that Jacob loved Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel. He didn't love Leah. And if you don't familiar with the relationship between Jacob and Rachel, Jacob goes to Padanaram. He falls in love with Rachel. I forgot that in the first service. I couldn't remember her name. And I said, well, what do you know? I'm turning 40 this week. It's starting. It's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. <laughs> but he loved Rachel. And he falls in love with Rachel. And he thinks he's marrying Rachel. And he has a little bit too much wine. And he wakes up in the morning next to Leah. And Jacob, the deceiver, got a taste of his own medicine from his father-in-law. And so he spends a week married to Leah, and then he gets to marry Rachel, and he has to work another seven years. But we're told that they went by just like that because of his love for Rachel. He didn't even think about the time that he spent working for Laban to, to win her in marriage. And we're told that he loved her. And there's one phrase in there where it says he not only that he didn't love Leah, but that he hated Leah. So it wasn't just like Rachel was the first among equals. It's pretty clear. Rachel was the first, and the other three were pretty disregarded. And so we see that Jacob loved Joseph and Benjamin's mother. And it made a big difference. It made a big difference in their lives. And so some practical things that you can do to show love to is keep dating your wife. There's nothing that says you've got to quit dating each other once you get married, once you say your I do's. Spend time one-on-one alone with each other. Cultivate that relationship. Pray, 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 pray for each other. Spend time in God's word together. I'm a firm believer that the couple that prays together stays together. There's all kinds of dysfunction that can't even get started, can't even take root in a marriage, in a family, when you're praying together, when you're hearing God speak into your marriage through your spouse, through your husband, through your wife. I'm a firm believer that the family that prays together stays together. You want your family to stay together? Spend time praying together. Teach your children to pray out loud early in their lives. Pray with their mother. Pray for their mother. And I know there's divorce, like half the marriages in America end in divorce now. And so you might be thinking, well, am I off the hook, Pastor Mark? No, you can still love their mother. You may not be married to her anymore, but if you got kids from a previous marriage, one of the best things you can do for your kids, even your adult children and grandchildren, is to love their mother, self-sacrificing surrender, to speak well of her, to, to honor her, whether she honors you or not. This is not a... A tip for tat. This is not, well, if she does, I will. This is, I'm going to lead the way. I'm going to go to divorce care. I'm going to go into counseling. I'm going to spend time healing from that divorce so that I can love their mother. One of the best things you can do for your kids, even in the face of divorce, is to love their mother and to not speak ill of her. You probably won't feel like it. And women, you probably won't feel like respecting your ex-husband. But that's one of the best things you can do for your kids. And the marriage maybe didn't make it, but that doesn't mean that the kids have to be a negative byproduct of that. You can choose to do your part. So the first difference maker for dads is to love your kids. Mother, the second is to submit to the Lord. Submit to the Lord. We see this happening next in Joseph as he, sorry, Jacob. There's a lot of names in this sermon. And like I said, it isn't going to get better before it gets worse. Uh, he, he submits to the Lord. He, he begins a new relationship with the Lord as he re- enters his homeland, as he returns home. We see him struggling with the Lord and coming into submission with the Lord. 
And this is a pivotal first step. This is absolutely essential. We have to submit to God and accept Christ as our Lord and our Savior. And if you're a dad and you're in the room today or you're watching online and you can't point to a time when you have brought your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ, when you've accepted his grace and forgiveness as the payment for the penalty of your sin, then this is an important first step in, in a huge difference maker for you. One of the best things that dads can do is point their kids to the Lord. The best thing that a dad can do is introduce their son or their daughter to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and to model an authentic relationship, not a perfect Relationship. It's not about legalistic perfection. It's about authentic relationship with Christ. And if you don't have that, you can't model that. You can't give what you don't have. And so submitting to the Lord becomes absolutely essential to recognize that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that everyone stands in need of a Savior, and to bring your life under submission to Christ, to accept his forgiveness, to accept his death on the cross as the penalty. This is the gospel. And I firmly believe that I need Jesus to be the dad God wants me to be to my kids. And I believe you do too. And so not only do we choose that once, we choose that daily. We choose that every day. We submit to the Lord every day. We ask God to empower us to be his vision for our children's father. Today, and the next day, and the next day. And so a passage like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's, that's putting our faith entirely in Him. Leaning not on our own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. He will empower you to walk in a way that you want your kids to walk. And when we look at Jacob, it's pretty easy to see that early in life he leaned on his own insight and his own understanding, not on God and not on God's ways. And I had to think about that for a moment. I looked, well, what was the model that was given for him? What was the model that Jacob had from his father Esau? And interestingly enough, Genesis twenty-five twenty-eight tells us that Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So the Apple didn't fall too far from the tree. Jacob had a really good example of a father playing favorites, of a father loving one child and not the other. And so he learned this, and he, by leaning on his own insight and own understanding, he repeated. And this highlights the generational impact of this. This matters so much, and it's never too late. It's never too late to turn. It's never too late to move in the right direction. It's never too late to start the right habits and to do the right things. And our families need spiritual leadership. Man, our families need spiritual leadership. Yes, they need us to love them. They need us to provide for them, both physically and emotionally and financially, but especially spiritually. They need that from us. And until we submit to the Lord and until we spend time listening to God and being obedient and repenting where there's sin, and following Him, and building holiness into our lives, we can't expect our children to do the same. It's not the church's job. The church is there to support. The church is there to reinforce. The church is there to provide community around the values that are being learned at home. And so you might say, well, how do I listen to God? How do I be obedient? Well, I'm beating this drum every week, but you read your Bible every day. Even if it doesn't make sense, you still read it. 
Even if you don't understand everything or you don't believe every word of it is true. You read the newspaper, you don't believe every word in there is true. Read your Bible every day. Read your Bible more than your newspaper, more than your magazine. Spend time in God's Word. Spend time in prayer. Even if you're not quite sure how to pray. Just start talking to God. Prayer is conversation about matters of mutual importance. Like you both agree that this matters. And so you read some scripture and you pray. You spend some time in a journal. You get in a D group. We can help you with all that. We can give you resources and all that. We can give you training and all that. We can make introductions and all that. But maybe one of the best things you could do is go to a father that looks like they did pretty well. And say, would you have coffee with me once a month and share with me? I mean, look at your kids. I did this with several guys when I was a young dad. And we go to breakfast once a month or once a quarter. And I'd say, man, this is what I'm dealing with. This is, you know, and it gave me somebody to call instead of saying something to my wife that I was going to regret or saying something to my kids that I was going to regret. And I say, okay, yeah. Are you done yet? Okay, yeah, I'm done. Here's what I would do. Here's what I would do in that situation. And I can't tell you the value of that. And maybe you're one of those guys and you need to look for a young father and say, hey, could I buy you breakfast once a month or once a quarter and just get to know you and, and share the little wisdom that I have to maybe help you be a better dad? I think there's a lot of guys in my generation, the generation younger than me, that would really appreciate that. And so... We learn to listen. We learn to be obedient. This takes time. It's not something where you make a snap decision on Father's Day 2021 and you walk out of here a perfect dad. But we stay submitted. We stay surrendered. The third difference maker that we see from Jacob's life is to speak blessing. Speak blessings over your children. Speak blessings over your family. This was a big deal, biblically. This was a big deal, getting that blessing, having that blessing spoken over. And it underscores or it highlights the power of your words, both for good and for harm. Speaking blessings is a tremendous difference maker in the life of a child. I know that my boys shine when I speak blessing over them. When I give them an attaboy, when I tell them that I love them, that I'm proud of them, that I appreciate something that they did. And on the flip side, they can be crushed just as quickly by overly harsh words or words spoken in anger. And those have to be quickly repented of and got to ask for forgiveness. And you got to do what you can to make it right. You see, Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 18.21 that the tongue has the power of life and death. Think about that. The tongue has the power of life and death. And you say, oh, that's hyperbole, Pastor Mark. That's an overstatement of the point. No, it's not. The tongue has the power of life and death. You can speak death into the life of your child or you can speak life into the life of your child. And we have to be intentional with our words. Proverbs twelve eighteen says, Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. We have the opportunity to bring healing into the lives of our children. When they have a bad day at school, when a relationship falls apart, when something goes wrong, we have an opportunity to speak healing If we have wise words, if we're spending time in God's word, if we're spending time in fellowship with other men, if we're spending time in prayer, we have the right words to speak into their lives to bring healing rather than to pierce like a sword. And if you're not sold on this idea yet, I want you to consider the importance of Isaac's blessing. We referenced this just briefly earlier, but between Isaac and He had a blessing that was either going to go to Esau as the firstborn or was going to go to Jacob. And Jacob swindles Esau out of his blessing. And we read afterwards that Esau, this hairy, strong, hunter-warrior of a man, wept loudly and bitterly. Loudly and bitterly. 
when he found that the blessing that was supposed to go to him had gone to Jacob. And then we see Joseph, who spends a lot of his life away from his father, spends a lot of his life down in Egypt in Pharaoh's court. And you can read all about that story. It's a fascinating story. But when he gets reunited with his dad, it's very important to him that his dad bless his sons, that his dad, Jacob, bless Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. As you can read about that in Genesis 48. And how important it was that the blessing get right and the hands end up on the wrong knees and it becomes very prophetic and it's a big deal. It's a really big deal in this culture. And then finally, Genesis 49 reports Jacob's blessing to each son. And it reads more like a curse for Reuben and Simeon and Levi. But we're told in Genesis 49 that he blesses them with blessings appropriate to each one. And they become very prophetic. And just to hit the highlights of that, Judah and Joseph receive five verses each. Judah is the line of David, the line of Jesus, the Messiah. Judah, the blessing spoken over him, that he's a lion. You've heard about the line of Judah. That comes right out of Jacob's mouth, spoken over his son Judah. And then Joseph receives five as well. And Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, Ephraim, who receives the blessing from Jacob of the firstborn, becomes the leader tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. In fact, it becomes synonymous. They don't even say the northern kingdom. They talk about Judah and Ephraim. Ephraim is so powerful in the Old Testament narrative that 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 half-tribe of Joseph is synonymous with the whole northern kingdom. Fascinating stuff. And then you look at Benjamin. Benjamin was prophesied or blessed to be great warriors. And they were great warriors. And they fought valiantly in many different battles in the Old Testament. And the first king, Saul, comes out of Benjamin. Do you think that's a coincidence? And even more than that, even more than David coming and and the line of Christ kind of on par with David coming out of Judah and the line of Christ coming out of David, you have the Apostle Paul who introduces himself in the New Testament as a Benjamite. What a powerful spoken word, spoken blessing, that Paul becomes the main vehicle through which the gospel comes to the whole known world at the time with his missionary journeys. And so you can never underestimate the power of your words, both for good or for evil. So make sure you communicate blessing, speak blessing, speak life into your children. Make sure you communicate it in their language at their level. You know, you don't want to speak some new king or some King James scripture over a three-year-old and expect him to get it. They just need to hear daddy loves you. Daddy's proud of you. Daddy's not going anywhere. Daddy thinks you're worth getting to know. Daddy thinks you're a winner and you're going to succeed. And those, that's what they need at that level. And then as a teenager, they probably need a text message, right? They probably need you to, you know, let them know in their model of communication, their mode of communication. Your adult children need to hear from you, need to hear that you see them, that you're proud of them, that you see what they're doing, what they're working for. They need to hear maybe some correction from you every now and then to know that you still care and that you care about them and you care about the next generation and the generation after that. We need to... Be intentional. And we need to pray. We need to pray for our kids. You talk about speaking blessing. You can speak blessing over your kids while they sleep. 
You can go down earlier, you can go down late, and you can put a hand on their door and you can pray blessing over those children, over their lives, over their spouses, over their families to come, over their careers, over their impact on this world, that their hearts would remain focused on God, that they would grow in a relationship with God. You can have little prayer walks through your home, but you also need to pray in person with your kids. They need to hear dad pray. They need to hear and see what prayer looks like. And you can't start this too early. And as soon as those little guys are verbal, get them praying too. It's one of my favorite things of every day is we spend time at the end of the day and we'd share about what was good about our day, what was hard about our day, what we're thankful for about our day, and then we take turns to pray. And all the sons from six pray. Unless it's really late and we're really tired and then it falls on me. But I bet you four, five, six days a week those Sunstrom boys are praying. And that's important to us. And they're hearing dad pray. And I'm praying that they turn out like really good, solid men of God who impact the kingdom. Not a bunch of knuckleheads like me. And so as we bring this to a close, you know, think about some practical application. I want us to start with the positive. Of those three, which one do you think you're doing the best at, dads? Which one do you think you're doing well? Loving their mom? Staying surrendered, submitted to the Lord, speaking blessing into their lives. Which one of those three would you say you're doing the best? Because I believe that your fully developed strength is always going to be better than your marginally improved weakness. So start there. Start with what's positive. Maybe ask your wife, which one did you think I was doing well? Wives, answer that question well. Okay, don't say, I don't think you're doing any of them well. Start somewhere. Because what gets celebrated gets repeated. And ladies, you may notice a guy making a genuine effort. Men... Make a genuine effort. Women, celebrate that. Be supportive. This is maybe where the application comes for you. Which of these areas could you be more supportive? Which of these areas could you be more responsive? And guys, if you feel the Holy Spirit tapping you on the shoulder and saying, this one could use some attention, then dig into that. Buy a book on that. Ask a guy who seems to be doing that well. How did you learn that? How did you grow in that area? What resources can you share? And let's say, you know, Father's Day 2021 could be a turning point. Father's Day 2021 could be the day that somebody accepts Christ and brings their life under submission to the Lord for the first time. I'm not, I'm not so sure that couldn't be the case right now. In this room or online or at some point in the future when somebody's listening to this and they're catching up on their sermons. So don't leave this place unchanged and don't forget to take a step of faith today. Every time we encounter God's word, we have an opportunity to respond in faith to God's word. And so that's going to be our prayer today as we realize that dads always make a difference. Lord, we know that. We see that in the pages of scripture. We know that you as our heavenly father have made a difference in our lives, a tremendous difference, a monumental difference. And so we pray now that your Holy Spirit would show us where we can grow, would show us where we can make a difference, would show us where we can become more like you, our perfect Heavenly Father. And so, Lord, I pray for the men in this room. I pray for those that maybe walked in struggling, feeling like they're, they're not doing well. May they be encouraged. May they be inspired. For those that came in and, and they've got a very fruitful life as a father, may they look for somebody to come alongside and encourage. Would you make some divine introductions today? Lord, wherever we are, 
whatever your Holy Spirit has been speaking to us as we've looked into your word for this last half hour or so. Help us to be a people who respond in faith. Help us to be a people who are different tomorrow because we came to church today. We pray it in Jesus' name.